Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 15 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2012 issue. Let's get started. The April lead article looks at non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in schizophrenia. The authors have examined the efficacy of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, commonly referred to as NSAIDs, as adjunctive therapy in schizophrenia. Mounting evidence suggests that inflammation is involved in the pathogenesis of schizophrenia, thereby implying that anti-inflammatory agents are potentially useful therapeutic strategies in this disorder. The authors conducted a meta-analysis including five double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials reporting on 264 patients. NSAID augmentation was found to have a moderate beneficial effect on total symptom severity and positive symptoms, and a small effect on negative symptoms. The authors conclude that NSAID augmentation could be a potentially useful strategy to reduce symptom severity in schizophrenia. As this was an early study of this relatively new strategy, and since the included sample size was modest, the results should be interpreted with caution. The authors note, however, that augmentation with aspirin may have the additional benefit of reducing cardiac and cancer mortality in schizophrenia patients. They therefore believe that application of NSAIDs in schizophrenia deserves further investigation as augmentation of antipsychotic treatment and for reduction of comorbid somatic diseases. The next article examines neural and behavioral correlates of peritraumatic dissociation in an acutely traumatized sample. The authors present findings suggesting that peritraumatic dissociation and childhood trauma may predict development of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. The study they conducted combined a prospective questionnaire with a neuroimaging paradigm in an acutely traumatized sample recruited from an emergency department. The subjects were assessed for acute stress disorder, PTSD, and dissociative symptoms at three time points. They were also assessed within the first three months after trauma. The study was sponsored by the Canadian government and the Volkswagen Foundation. Peritraumatic dissociation was found to predict PTSD diagnostic status at five to six weeks and at three months. The neuroimaging findings indicate that peritraumatic dissociation is associated with greater activation of the right occipital lobe. This region has been previously implicated in vivid autobiographical memory recall of highly emotional events. These results suggest that peritraumatic dissociation directly leads to the formation of intrusive memories. Peritraumatic dissociation and childhood trauma emerged as valuable predictors of PTSD development and therefore can guide the identification of individuals at risk. Our next study examined mortality from neuroleptic malignant syndrome in relation to different classes of antipsychotics. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome is known to be a potentially fatal, though rare, adverse effect of antipsychotic medication. 
The objective of this study, funded by the Japanese government, was to compare in-hospital mortality rates from neuroleptic malignant syndrome induced by typical versus atypical antipsychotics. Data during a five-year period for patients with neuroleptic malignant syndrome were extracted from a Japanese nationwide administrative claims database. The data included patient background, use of antipsychotics, and in-hospital mortality. Propensity score matching was performed to formulate a balanced one-to-one matched study and to facilitate comparison of in-hospital mortality between the two types of drugs. The matching process produced 210 patients in each drug group. In-hospital mortality was 3% in the atypical group and 7% in the typical group, but the difference was not significant. The results show that neuroleptic malignant syndrome remains a life-threatening disease among patients who receive antipsychotics. A tendency for lower mortality in the atypical antipsychotic group may reflect differences in the pathophysiology. However, to clarify whether the two types of antipsychotics produce different rates of mortality in neuroleptic malignant syndrome, further studies with larger samples are needed. Next, we move to an article on emotional numbing in post-traumatic stress disorder. This study explored the functional neural correlates of emotional numbing symptoms in people with PTSD. The study focused on two questions. Are emotional numbing symptoms particularly associated with response to positive valence relative to negative valence scripts? And would these symptoms be associated with response to emotional stimuli that are distinctly social in nature? Little is known about the biological basis of emotional symptoms. The study included 14 women with PTSD and 16 women without PTSD. Participants completed a standardized emotional imagery task while undergoing functional magnetic resonance imaging. Emotional numbing symptoms were also assessed. The study design was correlational with the primary outcome measures being blood oxygenation level dependent response to the emotional imagery task and self-reported severity of emotional numbing symptoms. Women without PTSD were not trauma exposed. Emotional numbing scores were significantly negatively correlated with self-report positive affect experiences. Emotional numbing symptoms were also negatively correlated with blood oxygenation level response in the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex during imagery of inherently social scripts that were either positive or negative in valence. In contrast, emotional numbing symptoms did not correlate with dorsomedial prefrontal cortex response to non-social scripts, whether positive or negative, in valence. The authors conclude that their findings are consistent with a role for emotional numbing symptoms in response to both positive affect and social emotions. They suggest that psychiatrists may consider attending to individual differences in emotional numbing symptoms in PTSD patients. The next article looks at a possible role for buspirone therapy in adults with ADHD. 
The objective of this study was to examine atomoxetine versus an atomoxetine-buspirone combination versus placebo in an adult population with ADHD. It was thought that combining buspirone, a drug often used for anxiety symptoms, with atomoxetine would prove to be better than atomoxetine alone. The study was funded by Pfizer Global Research and Development. Participants, all of whom had at least moderate levels of ADHD symptoms, were randomized to one of three treatment groups and were treated as outpatients for a seven-week period, followed by a one-week tapering-off period. Subjects were assessed frequently throughout treatment. Study results showed improvement in symptom scores for all participant groups with the greatest improvement seen for the combination therapy. The improvement over placebo was statistically significant for both the combination treatment and the atomoxetine treatment. Furthermore, the combination group, as compared with the atomoxetine group, showed a greater numerical improvement in symptom scores at several time points, but with a significant difference only at four weeks. The authors conclude that while this study does not demonstrate significant overall superior efficacy for the buspirone-atomoxetine combination versus atomoxetine alone, the numerical improvement found on virtually all efficacy measures at most time points and the instances of statistically significant superiority suggest that buspirone-atomoxetine combination therapy may be of some benefit to adults with ADHD. Our next article looks at depression treatment and level of amygdala activation. SSRIs are known to have effect on the limbic subcortical prefrontal brain networks. However, it hasn't been clarified whether the changes seen over time are driven by the antidepressants themselves or by clinical response. To pursue this question, a group from Amsterdam obtained functional MRI scans in 22 depressed patients treated with paroxetine. The investigators showed the subjects pictures of negative, happy, or neutral faces, while the scans captured changes in the amygdala and the limbic subcortical prefrontal network in response to those faces. Clinical ratings were also obtained using the Hamilton Depression Scale. The scans were done at baseline and at 6 and 12 weeks of treatment. As a reference, 21 healthy controls each received one scan. As expected, at baseline, the investigators found increased limbic and decreased prefrontal activations in patients versus controls. Unexpectedly, though, after 12 weeks, the overall limbic activity, measured as amygdala activation, remained unchanged relative to baseline. The investigators did find lower amygdala activation in treatment responders versus non-responders. The amygdala signal was inversely correlated with activation of the pregenual anterior cingulate cortex, an area that is critically involved in regulating emotions between dorsal and limbic systems. The researchers concluded that only successful paroxetine treatment decreased amygdala activation. The finding that functional connectivity between the amygdala 
and the pregenual anterior cingulate cortex improves during SSRI treatment is indicative of improved frontolimbic control, which might be necessary for clinical response. Next, we have a study of prediabetes in patients treated with antipsychotics. This article presents a study that is the first of its kind to apply the 2010 American Diabetes Association criteria for the definition of prediabetes to a population treated with antipsychotic drugs. In particular, the study explores the prevalence of prediabetes in the cohort. Also, a comparison is made of clinical and metabolic features in prediabetic patients versus patients with normal glucose tolerance versus patients with diabetes mellitus. The study included 783 adult psychiatric inpatients without a history of diabetes who were receiving antipsychotics. All patients in this cross-sectional study underwent measurement of body mass index, waist circumference, oral glucose tolerance, and fasting insulin and lipids. The results show that prediabetes is highly prevalent in adults treated with antipsychotic drugs. 37% of the sample fulfilled criteria for prediabetes. Also, a statistically significant intergroup gradient from normal glucose tolerance to prediabetes and from prediabetes to diabetes mellitus was observed for waist circumference, triglycerides, fasting insulin levels, and frequency of metabolic syndrome. These results should further stimulate concerted efforts towards widespread cardiometabolic monitoring, which has heretofore remained inadequate, and aggressive preservation or restoration of glucose tolerance, insulin sensitivity, and overall metabolic health. Next, the relationship between tobacco use and early-phase psychotic illness is explored. Defining when tobacco use begins in relation to the onset of psychosis and defining the course of tobacco use after development of psychotic illness are important. Knowledge of this association may help to explain why tobacco use is so prevalent in this population and to improve our understanding of the illness itself. To learn more about this relationship, the authors conducted a meta-analysis to determine the length of time between initiation of daily tobacco use and the onset of psychosis and to determine the proportion of first-episode psychosis patients who smoked tobacco at the time of initial psychosis treatment. They studied the odds of tobacco use in first-episode psychosis patients as compared with appropriately matched controls, and they examined the longitudinal rates of tobacco use in patient cohorts with first-episode psychosis. The meta-analysis found that 59% of patients with first-episode psychosis used tobacco at the time of initial presentation for treatment. The initiation of tobacco use preceded the onset of psychosis by five years, and once the illness was established, the prevalence of tobacco use varied little over time. The findings provide further support for the hypothesis that 
Patients with psychosis have an underlying neurobiological susceptibility to tobacco use that is unrelated to the positive symptoms of psychosis or the effect of treatment with antipsychotic medication. Our next article examines insomnia, a prevalent and intractable symptom of depression and its relation to depression treatment response. This study is the largest to date that examines the degree to which insomnia, objective sleep disturbances, or their combination predicts treatment outcomes in depressed patients following psychotherapy or a combination of psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy. 711 clinically depressed patients participated in this study. Remission status served as the study outcome and was defined according to the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. Insomnia was measured by self-report. Objectively measured short sleep duration, prolonged sleep latency, and prolonged nocturnal awakenings were measured using polysomnography. The odds of non-remission from depression were analyzed in relation to insomnia, each of the objective sleep disturbances or their combination after adjustment for age, sex, treatment modality, and baseline depressive symptoms. Results indicated that objectively measured prolonged sleep latency alone or in combination with insomnia predicted increased risk of non-remission. Insomnia and sleep duration individually and in combination were also associated with a significantly increased risk of non-remission. The authors conclude that treating sleep problems by using empirically supported behavioral or pharmacologic interventions may play an important role in optimizing depression treatment and prevention efforts. Our next authors ask the question, are antipsychotics or antidepressants needed for psychotic depression? To inform clinical practice, the authors performed a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials comparing antidepressant-antipsychotic combination treatment with either treatment alone in adults with psychotic depression. The primary outcome was study-defined inefficacy. Eight randomized acute-phase studies were included. The work was supported in part by the National Institute of Mental Health. Combination treatment in five trials with 337 patients was superior to antidepressant monotherapy. The risk of inefficacy was reduced by 24%, and the number needed to treat was 7. Combination treatment in four trials with 447 patients was also superior to antipsychotic monotherapy. The risk of inefficacy was reduced by 27%, and the number needed to treat was 5. All-cause discontinuation and reported side effect rates were similar, except for more somnolence with the combination treatment versus antidepressants. Only one four-month extension study with 59 patients compared the maintenance efficacy of combination treatment with antidepressant monotherapy, resulting in no group differences. Three conclusions emerge. One, available evidence supports the use of antipsychotic-antidepressant combination treatment rather than monotherapy with either one for the acute management of psychotic depression. Two, 
Data on specific combinations are too limited to allow more detailed recommendations. And three, evidence is lacking regarding the relative efficacy of antipsychotic antidepressant combinations compared to monotherapy for relapse prevention. In summary, these results support the recent treatment guidelines for psychotic depression by the American Psychiatric Association. However, more studies are needed to assess the efficacy and safety of specific combinations and to determine whether and for how long combination treatment should be continued to prevent another episode of psychotic depression. Our next article looks at how Katie trials have impacted prescribing practices. Results from the Katie trials began publication in 2005. Three interpretations have arisen. One, second-generation antipsychotics may have fewer advantages over first-generation antipsychotics than had been generally thought. Two, olanzapine fared best for efficacy among all assessed agents. And three, clozapine was the most efficacious second-line agent after treatment failure with a second-generation antipsychotic. The authors examined physician prescribing behavior relative to these three conclusions before and after the publication of Katie. They extracted antipsychotic prescription rates from a Missouri Medicaid claims database with over 50,000 patients. Tests were used to compare rates of antipsychotic prescribing before and after each of three Katie publications. The article received support from the state of Missouri. The authors found evidence that the publication of Katie results had a small but statistically significant effect on the prescribing habits of psychiatrists, but not other physicians. However, larger changes occurred in prescribing behavior, changes that seemed mostly unrelated to the Katie trials. The authors propose a hypothesis related to long-term risk versus short-term gain to explain the direction of observed changes. Next, we have a robust collection of five articles in our section devoted to early career psychiatrists. I'm sure you will also want to read John Kane's commentary about the annual NCDU meeting as a great opportunity for early career psychiatrists. In our first article from the Early Career Psychiatrist section, the authors discussed the diagnostic and treatment implications of the psychiatric manifestations of mitochondrial disorders. Patients with psychiatric illness, particularly those with particular medical comorbidities, may have underlying mitochondrial disorders. The authors reviewed the literature on the psychiatric presentation of mitochondrial disorders and found that patients can present with a range of psychiatric symptoms, including mood disorders, psychotic disorders, anxiety disorders, cognitive deterioration, and personality change. Their experiences shown that abnormal neurologic findings, multiple medical symptoms affecting several organ systems, a significant family medical history, and treatment resistance or worsening clinical status with psychotropic medications should alert physicians to the possible diagnosis. 
If a mitochondrial diagnosis is suspected, a thorough clinical assessment should be conducted. Patients with suggestive clinical presentation and findings should be referred to a neurometabolic specialist for definitive genetic testing. At present, no curative treatment for mitochondrial disorders exists, but many of the symptoms may improve with mitochondria-targeted supplements. Establishing the diagnosis of a mitochondrial disorder has important treatment implications for psychiatric patients, as many psychotropic medications impair mitochondrial function or have side effects that may worsen medical conditions associated with mitochondrial disorders. Therefore, physicians need to be aware that mitochondrial disorders can present with psychiatric symptoms and to maintain a high index of suspicion for the diagnosis. The next article looks at antidepressants in non-severe major depression. Should antidepressants be given only to severely depressed patients? Some recent meta-analyses suggest they should, but elsewhere in the literature, patients with non-severe depression are shown to benefit from antidepressants. The authors adopted the latter view and conducted a study to test their hypothesis that patients with a Hamilton depression score of less than 23 would respond to antidepressant medication. They reanalyzed the data from one clinic's randomized, placebo-controlled antidepressant studies conducted between 1977 and 2009. They examined the data for patients with non-severe major depression to determine whether these patients responded to antidepressants. Treatments were compared with in-study and through a patient-level meta-analysis. Six placebo-controlled studies were found that included eight active treatment arms. Three of the six studies showed significant treatment effects, and four of the six studies showed significant differences in remission rates. The significant findings produced by this study suggest that mild to moderate major depressive disorder can benefit from antidepressants. The next article examines the role of race in antipsychotic prescription practices. Several studies have suggested that racial minorities are prescribed more long-acting injectable antipsychotics than whites. The investigators conducted a retrospective study to determine whether this was true at their institution and, if so, why. They identified patients with DSM-IV schizophrenia who received antipsychotic prescriptions at their community mental health center over a one-year period. They compared the group receiving long-acting injectables to those not receiving long-acting injectables. Results showed that white patients were significantly less likely to receive long-acting antipsychotic medications than minority patients. Non-whites were almost twice as likely to receive such drugs. Age, gender, and comorbid diagnoses were unrelated to prescribing practices for long-acting injectables, and race and ethnicity were not associated with the use of specific drugs. The authors conclude that racial minorities with schizophrenia 
are more likely than whites to receive long-acting injectable antipsychotics, perhaps because prescribers consider them less adherent to medication regimens. Clinicians should try to improve adherence by using effective psychotherapy modalities and oral antipsychotics at optimal doses before opting for long-acting injectables. Clinicians can also screen for comorbid substance use, depression, or medication side effects in all patients to identify those at risk for non-adherence. The next group of investigators sought to establish the minimum clinically important difference on the positive and negative syndrome scale. The minimum clinically important difference for an outcome measure score refers to the smallest difference that patients or providers perceive to be clinically beneficial. This metric can be ascertained by anchoring outcome measure scores to a measure with clinical meaning, such as the Clinical Global Impression Scale, commonly called the CGI, or by using a sample's statistical characteristics to separate signal from noise. The authors used data from the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness, known as the CATI trials, to calculate the minimum clinically important difference for the positive and negative syndrome scale, or PANS, the most widely used standardized instrument for assessing symptom severity in schizophrenia. They used anchor-based methods to link PAN scores to the CGI and used a distribution-based method based on the standard era of measurement. Results showed the minimum clinically important difference for improvement on the PANs using the clinician-rated CGI as anchor equaled a 34% change from baseline. When using the patient-completed CGI as the anchor, the minimum clinically important difference equaled a 24% change from baseline. These results largely confirm prior estimates and show that patients with schizophrenia can tolerate less change in symptomatology per change in self-assessed severity ratings compared to clinician-assessed severity ratings. These results may help clinicians and researchers interpret clinically important change in future research and clinical work. Our last article in the Early Career Psychiatrist section looks at decycloserin augmentation of behavioral therapy in anxiety disorders. Decycloserin is a pharmacologic agent that enhances N-methyl-D aspartate glutamate receptor function. It has been shown to enhance the process of fear extinction in animals. Several investigators have also conducted double-blind, placebo-controlled trials to see whether decycloserin could enhance the effects of cognitive behavioral therapy in treating anxiety disorders. With the support from the National Institutes of Health, a group from Yale University conducted a meta-analysis to determine the efficacy of decycloserin as an augmentation to behavioral therapy in anxiety disorders. They identified nine trials involving 273 subjects. 
These trials demonstrated a significant benefit of moderate effect size from D-cycloserin augmentation. The researchers could find no effect of dose, dose timing, or number of doses on D-cycloserin efficacy. The underlying anxiety disorder being treated also did not significantly influence efficacy. Further research should examine possible moderators of the effects of D-cycloserin, particularly the type of anxiety disorder, the type of behavioral therapy used, and the treatment duration. And now we round out our podcast with five excellent online-only articles, all of which are available to subscribers at psychiatrist.com. The first deals with how long to continue treatment after a single psychotic episode. A difficult decision often confronting clinicians is how long to continue antipsychotic treatment after a single episode of psychosis. Guidelines generally recommend at least 12 to 24 months, but some argue for indefinite treatment. In this single-site, open-label study funded by Janssen, 33 patients had been treated for two years for first-episode schizophrenia and had responded well. They then entered a three-year intermittent treatment study. That is, treatment was reduced and discontinued if possible, with immediate reintroduction at first signs of symptom recurrence. Recurrent rates were very high, 79% at 12 months, 94% at 24 months, and 97% at 36 months. There are now seven published studies of treatment reduction and discontinuation in patients with first-episode psychosis. Several of these studies report a similarly high risk of relapse. The present study also highlights the difficulties associated with early identification of such patients in clinical practice. The investigators found no significant predictors of early relapse, and early warning signs were often of very brief duration. Furthermore, symptom severity rapidly returned to levels close to those observed in the initial episode. Given the potentially grave consequences of relapse, intermittent antipsychotic treatment, even after two years of successful treatment, may not be in the best interest of patients who have experienced a single psychotic episode. Next, we have a longitudinal study that examined the role of prescribed medication in deliberate self-poisoning. A key strategy in preventing suicidal behavior is to limit the availability of means for fatal and non-fatal deliberate self-harm. This particularly applies to deliberate self-poisoning, which is by far the most frequent method of deliberate self-harm in individuals who present to a hospital. However, the availability of prescribed medication in these patients is not known, and it is not clear whether they choose drugs prescribed to them for self-poisoning. The authors, therefore, wanted to investigate medication load in patients with deliberate self-poisoning relative to the general population and to discover whether they actually use prescribed drugs in their self-poisoning episodes. 
They also were interested to learn whether patients who ingest drugs prescribed to them in self-harm episode differ from those who do not, and whether they tend to ingest drugs collected temporally close to the index episodes. The results showed that deliberate self-poisoning patients had a much greater prescribed medication load compared to the general population. About 80% of these patients ingested drugs they had collected, and this tendency increased with age. Only 25% used drugs collected within the week prior to admission. Patients who collected sedatives were more likely to use them for self-poisoning as compared to patients who collected antidepressants. The much greater medication load in these patients is particularly important given their tendency to ingest their own prescribed medication in self-poisoning episodes. The findings indicate that the time factor for collection of medication prior to an episode is less important than the general medication load. More attention should be directed to the total medication load for individuals at risk for self-harm. The next article evaluated the possible association between benzodiazepine use and cancer risk. Benzodiazepines are among the most frequently prescribed drugs. The possible association between benzodiazepine use and subsequent cancer risk was evaluated in this study by analyzing data from the Taiwanese National Health Insurance System. The study was supported by the China Medical University Hospital and the Taiwan Department of Health. The study included an exposure cohort of almost 60,000 patients who used benzodiazepines and an aged-matched and sex-matched control cohort that did not use benzodiazepines. Proportional hazards regression analysis was conducted to estimate the effects of benzodiazepine use on cancer risk. In patients with benzodiazepine use, the overall risk of developing cancer was significantly higher, at 19%, than in subjects without benzodiazepine exposure. In terms of individual types of cancer, the risk of developing bladder and kidney cancer, prostate cancer, and liver cancer was significantly higher for the benzodiazepine cohort. This population-based study shed light on the possible relationship between benzodiazepine use and increased cancer risk. Further large population-based studies and randomized controlled trials investigating the relative cancer risk between different benzodiazepines and specific types of cancer are needed to confirm the conclusions. The next study investigated the clinical expression of bipolar 1 disorder as a function of age and polarity at onset. Future nosographical classifications will possibly include new specifiers for bipolar disorders. Among them, age at onset and polarity at onset, or predominant polarity, are likely to represent relevant clinical variables that could help clinicians to predict the variability of this disorder. 
480 French patients and 714 U.S. patients with bipolar disorder type 1 were included in a study that aimed to compare clinical expression and outcome according to the onset characteristics. The majority of patients experienced an early onset and a depressive onset. Early onset was associated with suicidal behavior and misuse of cannabis, cocaine, and opiates. Depressive onset was associated with suicidal behavior and alcohol misuse. Finally, the polarity at onset was associated with subsequent polarity. These findings may help clinicians to better anticipate the course of bipolar disorder, facilitating personalized strategies and early focused comorbidity prevention. Our next and final article is on transcranial magnetic stimulation. New evidence suggests that patients suffering with treatment-resistant depression may find relief with transcranial magnetic stimulation, known as TMS, a treatment recently approved by the FDA. The objective of this study was to learn more about TMS, as very little is known about its effectiveness in a clinical practice setting. This study was supported by the NIMH-funded Clinical Research Scholars Program at the University of Pennsylvania. The study included 100 consecutive patients with treatment-resistant depression in a clinical TMS treatment program. The patients were very ill at baseline. About 30% had failed electroconvulsive therapy, and the group had an average of 2.8 adequate antidepressant trials in the current major depressive episode. The results were very encouraging. Overall, 41% responded and 35% achieved remission. For patients with prior failure with an electroconvulsive therapy, the response rate was 38% and the remission rate was 32%. For bipolar patients, the response rate was 35% and the remission rate was 15%. Of patients who went on to receive maintenance treatment, over half maintained responder status at last follow-up. Only 3% of patients stopped TMS treatment because of side effects. The authors conclude that TMS is safe and effective for both acute and maintenance treatment of patients with treatment-resistant depression. Dr. Mark Zimmerman has given us a thought-provoking commentary this month on the issue of broadening the diagnostic criteria and lowering the diagnostic threshold for bipolar disorder. He examines whether the change would do more harm than good. Dr. Joseph Goldberg adds his astute wisdom in his own commentary. Both of these are a must-read. Our special case report this month highlights a case of new-onset severe akathisia arising within several days after the patient who had bipolar 1 disorder was switched from branded to generic high-dose olanzapine. Resolution occurred soon after resuming the branded drug. This case is noteworthy, and I'm sure you'll want to read the whole report at psychiatrist.com. Be sure to check out our always engaging letters and book reviews and interactive activities from our CME Institute. 
Join us online for this and much, much more from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.